Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Theology matters. Might be a bit of an understatement. Take, for example, this brilliant scene from the life of Brian. If you believe that saying the word Jehovah is blasphemy, then it might lead you to stone someone to death. So imaginable the unthinkable of a conviction, an excommunication, the burning of others at the stake, the igniting of the crusades, the extermination of an inferior race, and you could begin to understand how someone's theological assumptions can change the world. The word theology is the Greek word theos. It is meaning uh, God. And, and it also comes from the word logos, which means word or reason. So it literally means a discourse or reasoning of God. Theology is a human effort to bring about rationale and understanding into who God is and how God functions in the world. So the way that we understand God, the way that we understand how God functions in the world, directly affects the way that you see God, how you interact with God, and how you interact with the world as a result of your understanding of God. So theology matters because it matters. It matters in our everyday life. It, it matters because it can become a dividing point for so many people. We all too often leave the deep thinking and, and navigating complex issues to professionals like theologians and academics and professional ministers. But what we need to stop and consider is that our theological assumptions, if they have an impact in our day-to-day -day living, then each one of us needs to be theologians. In fact, you are. You are a theologian. And you don't need to depend on a pastor or a professor to tell you what you need to think and to believe. Instead, each one of us must think deeply. As one author put it, we are convinced that engaging in careful theological thought is an essential task of the Christian life. The only question is whether we will be thoughtful, responsible theologians or irresponsible ones. Theology matters because it affects your everyday thinking, living, and speaking. But where do we begin with our understanding of God? How do we develop the way that we comprehend God? How much of our theology is spoon-fed? In other words, some pastor or some family member at one point just told you this is what you need to believe and you believed it at face value and have never taken time to think deeply for yourself. Oftentimes we leave the cognitive processing and reasoning to other people and simply regurgitate what we have been told. But God has given us a mind to think deeply, to understand intentionally why we believe what we believe. What we have assumed about God and subsequently our way of living in response to that can often be something that we haven't thought deeply about. It's based on minimal facts and minimal thinking. These difficult questions, I reiterate my point, theology matters. So take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 14. Today we're beginning this new conversation, Heretic, Rethinking Our Theological Assumptions. Over the next 12 weeks, we're, be going, we're going to be digging deep into some of the most, most formational aspects of Christian theology and wrestling with difficult questions. And these conversations are based around the Apostle and Nicene Creed that we used this morning. For nearly 1,600 years, these statements of faith have united people from all over the world in their understanding of Jesus Christ. And my prayer during this conversation 
conversation is that we're willing to re-examine our personal theological assumptions about God and how we live in response to that theology. But my other hope is that we also process how we together as a community of people understand our theology and how we live together as a church community in response. So how I understand God affects the way I live. How we understand God together affects the way we live together. So where do we begin this conversation? Let's start with a narrative that shows us that sometimes our theological assumptions about God can be really, really wrong and lead us to really, really stupid things. So Luke chapter 4 verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, to recover sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22 says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physicians, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear what you did in your hometown as you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Skip down to verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow on the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Hey, do you remember that moment where Jesus gave one of the most beautiful and poignant and revolutionary speeches in his hometown of Nazareth, and their response was to throw him off a hill? Yeah, that just happened. <laughs> Jesus is coming off of uh, the starting point of his public ministry, his baptism, these 40 days in the desert, and he returns to his home region of Galilee, to his hometown of Nazareth. And I just imagine Jesus standing up there in front of this group and he says, Good to see you, Aunt Bertha. Hey, buddy Jesse, I hope you're doing all right. Hey, I just want to make it perfectly clear what I'm about. <laughs> I'm about bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This kingdom that is for all people, no matter if they're blind or in prison or suppressed, it is a kingdom for all people. Jesus gives this beautiful speech. I want you to take Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Reagan's Tear Down This Wall, and if you can remove any political allegiance, you have one way to the other, Barack Obama's acceptance speech on election night in his first term. Take all those brilliant speeches in historical history and multiply them times a gazillion, and we wouldn't even begin to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying in this moment. What Jesus is saying is groundbreaking. What he's saying is spiritually shifting. What he's saying is full of political and social provocative terms. And how did the Nazareans respond? They wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. <laughs> Why? 
Because Jesus just messed with their theological assumptions. Jesus had ruffled the feathers of the political and religious and social constructs. Jesus had done the equivalent of taking their world and turning it upside down and shaking it up a bit. How would you respond? In Jesus' hometown, this is how they respond to him. It's no wonder in the public ministry of Jesus that for three years we hear over and over again that the religious leaders plot to have him killed and eventually they succeed and crucify him. To the first century Palestinian, Jesus was a rebel. But more than that, Jesus was a heretic. The word heretic comes from the Greek word heretikos, which means able to choose. A heretic is one who chooses to hold a doctrine or concept that is different than the dominant view. So at last, to a first century Jew, Jesus was a heretic. One of the few reasons that Jesus was found on a Roman cross. He asked them, and he's asking us, to rethink the way that we see God and the way that God works in the world. You could also add to Jesus' resume, Cliff Evader. Like, I don't know how he did that. Like, he just walked right through them. Heresies have been a part of the church since Jesus ascended. In the early centuries, you have the, um, the Arians, those that, we'll talk about that in a few weeks, the Manichaeans. In the Middle Ages, it was the Cathari and the Wald- Waldensians. And in the Renaissance, you had the Hussites and the Lutherans and the Calvinists and the Rosicurians, and, and all these different heresies that came about in the church. And efforts to suppress heresies initially were organized around a council um, to suppress this, to, to handle this. In 1231, Pope Gregory IX published a decree that called for the imprisonment with possibility of penance, <laughs> but for the condemnation of death of someone who was a heretic. So then begins this thing called the Inquisition, which would have been a great show from Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1, but we don't have time for that clip this morning. Let me translate this for you. The, the Inquisition was a means by which the church enforced orthodoxy. Inquisitioners would go around and find troublemakers in the regions, people of question, they would punish them, sometimes harsh ones, like burning people at the stake, or draw and quarter, or using the Iron Maiden. It's estimated that several hundred thousand people died in this period. And all this is what? In response to heretical thoughts, people thinking differently. And honestly, some of the people that were burned at the stake were promoting theological stances that we now assume to be true today. You see, it's, it's easy for us to look at the Nazareans and to think, how could they respond to Jesus this way? It's easy to look at the religious leaders that had Jesus crucified and to condemn them. It's easy to look at our church's history, not Mosaic's history. We haven't burned any heretics at the stake. Um, but the church history, the, the holy Catholic church, the universal church over this period of nearly 2,000 years and seeing the times that people have hurt others because of their theological stances. And we can judge them. And honestly, it's quite unthinkable to think of these things. The more difficult thing for us to do is to look at ourselves and see how often we have misinterpreted or misshapen our understanding of God and how that has formed the way we live each day. If we can stop and put ourselves in the shoes of the Nazareans, then we might be able to look at them with a bit more grace. These were people that grew up with Jesus. 
They saw him as a baby. They saw Mary and Joseph have other children. They saw his work as a carpenter. They saw Mary and Joseph raise him up. It's easy for them to understand that they couldn't quite accept what Jesus was saying at this moment. And it's no wonder that they were so ready to push him off a hill. Though that seems a bit abrupt, (laughs) if we're honest. But if we stop and think about it, how willing are we to shape our theology in the way that it fits into the way we live each day? How often have we let our politics shape our theology instead of our theology shape our politics? I'm not getting political, but the issues of immigration and faith and gender equality and foreign policy and the rights of others and responding to the marginalized and the poor, all those answers are found within Scripture, yet we have a tendency to shape our American political opinions to fit into what's comfortable for us. How often do we live a life of fulfillment when Jesus told us to constantly give away to others, give away to others? We're guilty more often than we like to admit of shaping our theology to fit into what we desire, how we want to see the world, how it affects our day-to-day living. This happens on the far right, in the middle, and the far left of the theological spectrum. The degree of religiosity, no matter how conservative or how liberal, it is all too easy to shape our theology for ourselves. As theologian John Caputo wrote, Theology is idolatry if it means that we say what we say about God instead of letting ourselves be addressed by what God has to say to us. Faith is idolatrous if it is rigidly self-certain, but not if it is softened in the waters of doubt. For all of us, if we're honest, we, we shape our theology because we see God through a certain bias. We can't help it. The way that we were born, where we grew up, the home we grew up in, the way that we speak, the chapters of our life we have faced have all created a bias by which we see and understand God. Let me give you a soft example for this. This is uh, Michael Jordan, and this is LeBron James. Now, if I were to ask you who you think the greatest player of all time, some of you would abruptly say Michael Jordan, and others would argue LeBron James. But have you ever stopped and considered for just a second why you hold that particular opinion about Michael or LeBron? Have you ever considered that the marketing that Michael Jordan got in the 1980s and 90s played a part in the way that you see Michael? The fact that for nearly two decades, Nike and McDonald's and Hanes and Gatorade were all associated with Michael Jordan. Did you know that he still gets $80 million a year from those endorsements? Did you know that that the way that you understand that if you grew up in that particular time and basketball was your particularly favorite sport, if you're a UNC fan, that you see Michael from a particular biased perspective? This is just Michael Jordan and LeBron James asking you who you think the greatest player of all time is. Now consider that when it comes to the way that we see the world, the way that we see politics and economics and scripture and faith and theology. We come with a particular bias. You see, our experience, our culture, our philosophical, political, and theological perspectives all are interpreted through a particular bias. The way that we learned and understand theology is determined in advance oftentimes how we feel about certain things. With all this that we bring into our understanding of God and how God functions in the world, the challenging question we must ask is, do we tend to shape our theology or does our theology tend to shape us? Really stop and think about that for just a second. 
with all the biases we bring into acting and thinking theologically, do we tend to shape our theology or does our theology tend to shape us? Much of it is this theological shaping is the way that we understand scripture is a perfect example. You see, theology tends to be shaped by scripture because scripture speaks so much about God. But oftentimes we, and how we understand and read scripture, can be a perfect example of the biases that we have. Take, for example, the law of Moses. Over the last couple of years, these laws of the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy have been vehemently referenced and condemning certain groups of people within our culture. These scriptures are usually prefaced by saying, well, the Bible says. Okay, so let's roll with that for just a second. Deuteronomy has some very interesting laws that we tend to ignore each and every day because the Bible says, like chapter 22, where it states that if a man rapes a woman who has pledged to be married to someone else, as long as he pays her father 50 shekels, then he can take her as his wife. The Bible says so. Later in chapter 22, it says that if a young woman does not scream when another man is taking advantage of her, then it is not considered to be rape, and therefore he and she must be put to death. Ladies, in order to Deuteronomy chapter 25, if your husband is fighting with another man and you reach up and hit that man in the midsection, well, according to that, your hand should be removed by the book of Deuteronomy. Let's consider a few short lists of things that you and I break each and every day. I, heard, I sure hope nobody in here is wearing a cotton polyester blend shirt. Because according to Leviticus 19.10 or 19.19, you are breaking the law. Anybody eating shrimp, crabs, oysters, shrimp, crawdads, any of that? Leviticus 19.10, I'm sorry. Anybody have a stubborn and rebellious son that doesn't listen to anything you say? Well, according to Deuteronomy 21, we should take him to the outskirts of town and have him stoned to death. Mom and Dad, thank God you did not do that for all these years. <laughs> we all, at some point in our lives, whether we have become vegetarians or not, have savored the deliciousness of bacon and barbecue and pork chops. Leviticus 11, that is an abomination. Of course, we can't actually support this amazing thing called football because according to Leviticus chapter 11, we should not come in contact with a pig or its flesh and skin. But that's just the Old Testament, you say, right? What about the New Testament? Well, according to the New Testament, women should be silent in church and certainly shouldn't teach men. Anyone in here wearing expensive clothes or nice jewelry? According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, we shouldn't own any of these things. Maybe Jesus was joking when he said, sell your possessions and give to the money to the poor. How often have we called someone a fool or an idiot? According to Sermon on the Mount, we have broken the way of Jesus. You see, it's so easy for us to state the scriptures we are comfortable with and the scriptures that we can speak out against other people. It proves that we have a bias when it comes to our understanding of God and how God functions in the world. It proves that we bring a bias to our theological understanding, even of scripture. As Brian McLaren writes, the church has little idea how unorthodox it is at a given moment. Yet, we still come back to this idea that theology matters. Because theology shapes us. Theology is less to do with what and more to do with how. We are not called to read some sort of doctrinal statement and live bullet point by it, but we are, lived to, uh, we are called to live inspired by it. You see, theology shapes the way we see the world and the way that we interact with the world. 
The goal is to not simply read the words of Scripture and just let them be what we believe in, but to, to believe them and to live them out each day. Theology shapes us. And so therefore, as we come into this theological conversation, it's important for us to peel back the layers of our life and see the certain biases that we have economically, politically, socially, as we understand who God is and how God functions in the world. And within that, we see things from a different perspective. Each of us. Look around this place for just a second. There's some beautiful people in here. Alan Pope, that shirt is making your eyes pop this morning, by the way. Look around at everybody. Seriously, look, look around. All the introverts are like, I want to die right now. Um, <laughs> each person you see represents a different story, a journey, an experience. And the way that you've lived in that journey experience shapes the way that you understand God and the way that you interact with others And so it's so important for us to take time to understand why we even believe what we believe and how that shapes and forms us each and every single day. Because, believe it or not, if you believe that saying the word Jehovah is blasphemy, it will cause you to stone someone else, to drill a rock into their skull. It blows my mind we did that at some point. You see, theology shapes the way that we dialogue with others, the way that we interact with others, the way that we interact with the world. And so this series is an invitation to understand and examine why you believe what you believe and why you believe it and how you live that out each day. It's an invitation from Jesus who who called the Nazareans and each person he encountered to rethink the way that they see the world, the way that they see God, and how that affects the way they live each day. I'm inviting you to, to think deeply to process a variety of perspectives and to come away with a more formed understanding of why you believe what you believe. This is not a series where my goal is to make you doubt or question anything about your personal theological understanding, but I want you to come away with a, a moment where you can process and think deeply and ask difficult questions. Why do you believe what you believe about God, God's Son, and God's Spirit? How does your understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus impact your day-to-day living? What is your view of God's kingdom? What is your view of the church? How do you view scripture and how does that come into play each day? If theology matters, it has an impact on the way that we see our life and the world around us. Therefore, thinking theologically is an absolute necessity for our life. I grew up in Apex, um, right along the Cary border, and uh, I went to Apex schools, and like every good high school, the natural rival is the town next to you. Um, It should be noted that Cary High School's mascot is the imp. That's right, it's a small and mischievous little devil, so that just speaks for itself, right? Apex and Cary had a bitter rivalry. I can remember as far back as Pee Wee... Uh, football, just this bitter, pitted rivalry between Apex and Kerry. Um, it happened not just in the footballs and wrestling matches that I had each season, but also you could see it in the soccer and basketball games. And, and sometimes it would spill out over the field, right? Uh, so take, for example, Kerry High School uh, football players decided they would show up one Friday before our game uh, to the place that all of us gathered for lunch each day. So we went to Bojangles every single day uh, in high school for lunch. And uh, the football team would 
go and gather there together, and we showed up the Friday we were supposed to play carry, and it was full of their puke, ugly green jerseys inside. And what I remember from the incident is a fight was about to break out until the resource officer from Apex High School broke it up. At the time, this man was a winner of the Mr. North Carolina bodybuilder, uh, and so he didn't even have to pull anything out. He just like flexed his bicep and said, leave, and the guys left. <laughs> I may or may not have first-hand knowledge of salt getting dumped on Kerry football's field, ruining the grass on the field. I may or may not know anything about a graduation incident involving chocolate pudding. You see, uh, in Wake County, they would roll graduations back to back to back, and Kerry High School was after us, and they wore white robes chocolate pudding left on black seats. I have no knowledge of this. This pitted rivalry is still bred within me that when recently we went to a Carolina Hurricanes game, there was a Cary High School band booster running in the concessions and I found myself talking trash to them. It's so easy for us in a world that is polarized to have rivals. We so easily can find someone that we disagree with something. Part of this conversation that I want us to have as we wrestle through our theology is an invitation to unite us because the church is divided. There is a reason that there's over 30,000 Christian denominations in the world. I did not mess up that number. There's over 30,000 Christian denominations in the world. And yet we have this beautiful words of scripture. We had these beautiful Apostle and Nicene creeds that was intended to bring the church together in a time where they found themselves so divided. Theology shapes us, and it shapes the way that we interact with each other, and the call of Christ is to unite together. The church community should be a safe space to ask hard questions, to wrestle with those answers, even if the answers bring us to a place of more questions. You see, Rippert within, within Mosaic is, is a plethora of traditions. There are some people who grew up Baptist here, others Methodist, Presbyterians, Catholic, Anglican, non-denominational, and so many different more. And this diversity of perspectives has made us approach our theological conversation in a unique way. Because not everyone in here sees eye to eye on the non-essential things of our faith. And that's okay. This is a climate where we can see and hear each other from a different perspective, creating an opportunity for you to better understand why you believe what you believe. And since we are a community that is celebrating the diverse non-essentials we have in common, Mosaic has been able to develop a stance of non-essentials. What I mean by stance is we have not developed a church-wide creedal statement that's nature is a demand for some to exist and others to depart, whether or not they agree with this non-essential statement. We hope that Mosaic has a, a variety and deeply prayed over opinions that we can come together and maybe not see eye to eye on these things, but they help us form together because hearing other people and their perspectives matters in our life. We are not called to be tribal people that only hear and see things from one particular perspective. And the church needs to be an example to the world right now that tribalism is not the answer. And so Mosaic hasn't taken a stance on things like political and national idolatry. 
materialism, how much is too much wealth, piercing and tattoos, what is appropriate to do on the Sabbath day, this nasty thing called gossip that the church often wants to ignore but condemn other groups of people. We have not taken a stance on what kind of plants you are planting in your garden because according to the book of Leviticus, if you're planting two different plants in the same garden, it is an abomination to God. We hope we have a variety of opinions here. Our stance that we have taken is to love our neighbor as ourself. Because according to Jesus, that's the most important thing along with loving God. And when we love our neighbor, it gives us an opportunity to hear different perspectives, to respect one another, to value the way that we see the world and the way that we see God. It allows us to wrestle through these things together and rediscover why we believe what we believe. So this is an invitation to think theologically. This is an invitation to better understand how you see God, how God works in the world, and how you live in response to that God. Let's pray together.